Truth. How do we discover it? How do we understand it? And how do we apply it? These foundational questions of life can be answered in the pages of God's Word, the Bible. Through the systematic study of Scripture, we seek to equip women with a growing understanding of truth, which only comes by knowing the God of all truth. This is the Theology Matters Podcast. Welcome back to the Theology Matters Podcast. I am Laura Columbus, and I'm sitting here with Wendy Blackwell and Marty Crabtree and Bethany Drum, and we are excited today to talk about the B-I-B-L-E, as Marty sang during her class. <laughs> we're talking about bibliology today, and so we're going to start off and answer the question, other than the Bible, what book are you reading right now? Not the Bible, because we all assume that you're reading the Bible. So what else are you reading? I'm reading a compendium of books that John Piper wrote called The, the Swans Are Not Silent, which was a, a group of, of uh, biographies of important people in the church, like Martin Luther and um, folks like that. Okay, cool. I'm reading Jen Oshman's new book, Cultural oh, Counterfeits, I Confronting Five Empty Promises of Our Age and How We Were Made for So Much More. That's a very long title, but you can remember it as Cultural Counterfeits. And she basically is is looking at um, how we think we can make ourselves who we want to be based on what society tells us we should be versus who we are in Christ. And that that is, and she calls it an immovable identity and, and what a place to finally rest when we realize that. So it's good. I'm working on it. Oh, that sounds good. I'm not. I wasn't aware of that book. So, mm-hmm. see, I'm getting getting recommendations. All right, Bethany, what are you reading? Well, I'm reading a couple of things because I'm usually always reading fiction because I'm the fiction lover in the group, but also nonfiction. So, I'm finishing up Dan Crabtree's A House Without Walls, Marty's Son, um, which is very good. Um, but I'm also just started the first book in the Wing Feather series by Andrew Peterson because I had not read it. And somebody here at the church told me it was better than the Chronicles of Narnia and better than Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, which was anathema to me. So then I was <laughs> like, well, now I have to read it. So I just started the first book. Wing feathers. Yeah, that's on our audio book mm. listening to it when we drive to Michigan. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm, I'm going to be weird. Not weird, but I'm usually the nonfiction reader. And so I'm forcing myself to read some more fiction this summer. And I am reading Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen because... You've never read it? I've never read it. No, listen... I have started many Jane Austen books. I have never finished a Jane Austen book. This is like true confessions. And so I decided this is going to be the summer. I'm going to read Sense and Sensibility. And I have Karen Swallow Pryor came out with different books that she, it's not commentary. I don't know what you would say, but she gives some notes to help you. I'm like, good. Karen Swallow Pryor is going to help me. So, you know, and I'll be reading other theology books this summer too, but that's my my big goal for the summer. Well, when you're ready to read another fiction book, I have <laughs> lots okay. of all right. I'll, I'll hit you up. I'll hit you up on that. Uh, all right. So now getting to the book of all books, the Bible, uh, we will be talking about bibliology. So 
Wendy, you start us off. What is bibliology and what are some of the key characteristics of the Bible? All right. So according to Zuber, again, um, which has been our supplementary textbook um, in addition to the Bible, he defines bibliology as the study of the nature and key characteristics of the Bible. It also includes the study of the different forms of God's self-revelation. So I think the first thing to note in his definition is that it is a study. It is There is work involved. Um, and so it is the study, but then you have to know what you're studying. And that's what you asked in the question, what are some key characteristics? It is the study of the nature and key characteristics. So as far as key characteristics of the Bible, and there's, again, if you Google it, you'll find a variety of lists, but I'm going to kind of hone in on these characteristics of inspiration, authority, inerrancy, sufficiency, clarity, and necessity. And even if you go to some of the major systematic theology textbooks, you will find different listings in there. But um, but again, we kind of looked at those when we were teaching through theology. And just to touch briefly on those, if we start with inspiration, um, inspiration is the process by which God worked through human authors to communicate his revelation. And I think that we have have touched on this and talked about it, the fact that there are 66 different books in the Bible written by over 40 different authors over about 1,500 to 2,000 years, depending on which timeline you put it on, three different continents, and yet there is complete consistency throughout the whole Word of God. And, And that just attests to the fact that it was inspired writing by God through human authors. And um, we, in the in doctrinal talk, we'll often use the phrase verbal plenary inspiration, if you've heard that before. And verbal simply means that it was words written down. It was communicated words um, inspired by the Holy Spirit written down by men. And plenary, plenary, sorry, get tangled on some of these words. Plenary means it was full. It was complete in its writing down of, of God's inspired scripture. Um, But we know in that inspiration that different men wrote because it wasn't dictated. You can look at different things or it would have been the same writing style, the same vocabulary from start to finish. And we see men bringing their different styles into the inspired writing. And so inspiration is one of the characteristics. Authority, that it was under the authority of God, that the the Bible is God's inspired word. And so thus the Bible is an authoritative source. Um, It was issued by God for us. And um, it, I'm looking at a note. It says, because of its divine author, the Bible is the source and norm for such elements as belief, conduct, and the experience of God. That comes from the Westminster Dictionary of Theological Terms. So we have inspiration. We have authority. We have inerrancy, which is simply exactly what it says. The, po- the position that the Bible affirms no falsehood of any sort. It is in its original manuscripts written without fault or error. Um, We obviously now in this day and time work with translations that have have come through the years, but what what they have found as they go back, even when original manuscripts have been found, is that there is very, very little um, alteration from those original manuscripts. But when we say it is inerrant and without error, we are going back to the original manuscripts. And then we say it is sufficient. The Bible itself contains all that we need to know for salvation, and it is all contained within um, 
the words of Scripture that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We've said that before, and um, and who that Savior is and what He has done on our behalf. So it is completely sufficient in revealing God's plan of salvation. Clarity um, can also be called perspective perspicuity, the clarity of the Bible, um, tells us that which is necessary to know and, again, believe regarding salvation, and it is very clear on that. And um, and then necessity, that um, man does need special revelation, and that kind of flows into what Zuber said in the second part of his definition, that you have to include the study of the different forms of God's self-revelation. And those include two things. I think, Laura, I may be just running right on into another question you wanted me to go through. Do you want to ask the question? Are you okay if I keep rolling? That was going to be the follow-up is, you know, can you talk to us about general revelation versus special revelation? Because some people might not know that there's a difference or not quite understand it. So yeah, take us there. Okay. So the, the, the key characteristic I was talking about was necessity, that we need God's word because it contains the special revelation. Um, general revelation is what God has revealed through nature, through our conscience. And you can, I, I have said this before, Psalm 19 gives a beautiful flow going from general revelation to special revelation. If you haven't sat down with the Psalms recently, it's a great time to do that. And Psalm 19 is a beautiful one. And it begins with saying, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And you can keep reading on through as to how nature does reveal that there is a God and that there is an order to God's creation. And we do see, and you can go to Romans 1 also and know that God reveals himself, um, his invisible qualities and and all are revealed through nature. And then again, in in Psalm 19, you move on into the, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And this is how it's through the law of the Lord, through his testimony, his precepts, his commandments, the rules, the decrees, all the words that are used in Psalm 119 to, re- to refer- reference um, scripture, all those point us to salvation. And that's that special revelation that God has revealed. And I love Ecclesiastes 3.11, I believe it is, where it says, essentially, God has put eternity on man's heart. It, within our conscience, we understand that that there is an eternity, and, and apart from God, um, that eternity will be spent outside of his presence. And it's through the plan of salvation revealed in special revelation that we can come to know and to know that we can spend eternity with our Heavenly Father. So general and special revelation and some key characteristics. Other thoughts? That's great. So the next question I had was, how do we know that the Bible really is divinely inspired? You talked about that inspiration and how many different people have written it and all of those things. So how how do we know that it's actually inspired by God? That's a good question. I think we can um, reference that there are some internal and external and evidences that God's word is divinely inspired. And I've already mentioned that the, the complete consistency throughout um, the writing that gives evidence to the just God's divine inspiration. I'm looking at your question. How is it divinely inspired that God kept that message consistent, though he used human authors? Um, he was consistently 
keeping the message flow. I'm not sure how I'm trying to say that. He was keeping the consistent message from start to finish um, in that. And we know I've, I've already referenced Psalm 119 and the word scripture that is used repeatedly through there. And the Old Testament, you can go to Jeremiah, you can go to Isaiah, some of our loves, and you can see that these men, these prophets were given direct speech from God to record, and it has been preserved down to this day for you and I um, to still read, to still study, to still know God through. And then there is prophecy. And there were over 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, and, and those were all fulfilled in one man. And We've given examples before, and you can talk about um, scientific notation and how many zeros come after on the uh, after the seventeen, just to fulfill a small number of those. And yet, there were three hundred messianic prophecies fulfilled. And then we can see, and I can attest to this even in my own life, the unique power of the living Word of God to transform the hearts of men and women. And um, that right there just speaks to there's something different about this book. Um, it, it and it alone is able to change the hearts of men and women. And so there are internal, there are external evidences. You can, I've talked about prophecies. There are historical events prophesied in the Old Testament that came to be. Um, human authors were willing to die for the words that they wrote and recorded and attested to. And then the Bible is still here. It is still with us. Um, and it has suffered more vicious attacks than any other work of literature or work of writing out there, and yet it still stands. And um, if I can, 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. I don't think we can skip going there when we talk about it being divinely inspired. It says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, in which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so God's Word makes it crystal clear and unmistakable that this is divinely inspired work. Yeah, and just to zoom out on, on that idea a little bit is just to think of the Bible as God showing us in words who he is. We're his creation, and he wants to be known by us. And so it was, it, the Bible is, is put together in such a way, it's written in such a way, inspired by the Holy Spirit in such a way, so that God is revealed to to his uh, creation. Well said, ladies. Well said. Yeah, so we will continue on. And Marty, we're going to go to you and ask you about the canon of Scripture. That's kind of a, I don't know, something that can come up that can confuse people, how the canon came about or why those certain books are put together. So can you speak to that? Just tell us about the canon of Scripture and how do we know what's considered part of the canon? Yeah, the word canon uh, means a measuring rod, and there's the canon of Scripture. There are other canons, you know, books of, of the English language, but in the, the complete canon of the Scripture, we're talking about something that's a measuring rod. It is a specific um, number 
of books, specific titles, specific writings that are scripture. Those things that are uh, not in the canon are not part of the scripture. The Bible that we hold in our hands has the complete canon of scripture. There are some books that were written um, by great and godly men over the years, but they were not recognized. And I say the word recognized as opposed to chosen because uh, the the Bible was not chosen. It became evident as it was being assembled that there were certain books, there were certain writings that were what God wanted uh, to be represented by. So everything that God wants us to know of himself is known through the pages of the Old and the New Testament. And we're going to talk, too, about inerrancy and sufficiency. Uh, but the Bible that we hold is inerrant, and it is without, um, without any uh, fault. Um, and what the Scripture says is what God says. That's, that's a B.B. Warfield quote, what the Scripture says, God says. They are one and the same. Uh, so with, when we think about the canon of Scripture, there are, there's Old and New Testaments, as I said. There are 39 books in, in our Bible uh, in, in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. Now regarding the Old Testament, by the time of Christ, all of the Old Testament had been written by the Jews. Uh, the, it was all written down uh, in uh, in a uh, work called the Masoretic uh, Text in Hebrew and Aramaic, and that contained three parts, which was the Torah, the teachings, and the law. There was the prophets, and then there were poetry and stories, which were referred to as a tanka. And first, the Old Testament was twenty-four books that were that were put together. And so w when I say that they were put together, so there were um, uh, priests and those who were Jewish leaders of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the Jewish church who um, put together the uh, writings of Moses and of Samuel and uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and so forth. Um, and they had them in a different order than what our book is in. Chronicles was, at one point, the last book in the Old Testament until uh, a person named Jerome translated the Bible into Latin in the 3rd century AD and put the books in the order that they're in. So as far as the Old Testament, it existed in the time of Christ, but it, it was in the way that we know the Old Testament now in the 3rd century. In the... Uh, also in the, the 3rd century, there was a translation of the Hebrew text into Greek, which is called the Septuagint. And there are other translations, and I want to talk about translations just for a second. Um, when it was translated into Greek, then there were other uh, Bibles that were written using that Greek translation, but now translators go back to the original Hebrew and Aramaic texts in order to to uh, translate the Bible as it is, be because you know language is a funny thing, and and in some languages, a word might mean one thing and it means something slightly different in a different language. And so, going back uh, into the original text, it makes it more um, uh, more accurate. So that's that's the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Uh, there are the gospel writers, uh, the four gospel writers, and uh, the book of Acts, and then the epistles uh, and Revelation. There are Paul's letters. John wrote three letters to the churches. Peter wrote two letters to the churches. And uh, actually, Peter contributed to Mark's gospel as well. Uh, there's James, Jude, Revel uh, Hebrews, and then the uh, Revelation, which was completed probably about 95 AD, written by John, and it was a message of hope to the churches. And so, as I said before, the New Testament canon was recognized and not uh, selected. Peter identifies Paul's writing as a collection of inspired writing in, in uh, 2 Peter 2. So from the second century onward, Paul's letters were, were sent around as a collection. And so then there was a, one of the church fathers na whose name is Organ, who mentions all 27 books of the New Testament. So as the New Testament church was growing and the leaders were spending time with these texts, they began to realize the ones that were recognized, the ones that were inspired and the ones that were not. And in his uh, in a letter that he wrote in 367 AD, he included, um, I'm sorry, Athanasius, the bishop, bishop of Alexandria, included all 27 books of the New Testament as we uh, would uh, recognize them today. So that is the, the canon of scripture as it was recognized. Yeah, I think that's helpful to have that language of recognized and not chosen because that does come up for debate. You know, you hear a lot of people who will say, well, the, this group of men just got together and chose which ones were in the Bible and chose the ones that weren't. And it really wasn't like that. They were recognized as scripture. And then that was just sort of formalized from what I understand. Correct. That, that's, so, yes, that's so true. It's helpful to use that that phrasing, I think, recognized, not chosen. So thank you for, for putting it that way. Yeah, and as, as you were talking uh, about inspiration, I think we, we can understand that the Holy Spirit oversaw the writers of Scripture and the same Holy Spirit oversaw the, the compilation of the Bible. And so in all of it, God was in control of what became his word. I mean, it is his word, and that's what he wanted, and that's what he—that's what he got. Because do God have, does get what he wants. Yes, yes. I do have a question. Um, how long have we had the complete canon since uh, it was in um, the Athanasius? included the, all the 27 books of the Old Testament in 367 A.D. The Old Testament was already right. recognized. Okay. Um, so, yeah, Marty, we're going to go back to this idea of inerrant or infallible. So when we hear pastors or theologians use those words, what, what do they actually mean? Well, there's, there's a, a writer named Paul Feinberg who I thought has an excellent way of talking about inerrancy. He's written an article called The Meaning of Inerrancy, and this is what he says. Inerrancy is when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs or their original writing, and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm that has to do with doctrine 
or morality or with the social or physical life sciences. In other words, it's true. It's inerrant. And what now it, the Bible is not a, a cookbook. And so there's not anything about how you how you bake a cake there. That's extra biblical information, but with respect to what the Bible discusses, it is completely without error. Now, infallibility uh, says that scripture is not able to lead us astray in uh, matters of faith and practice. And uh, infallibility and inerrancy are very close to each other, but um, so they're, they're basically a synonym for one another. The idea always being that it is that it is true um, as we when we first met to talk about theology matters I remember that we began to use the word truth a lot in our discussions and that became so important to us that that we made sure that what we would talk about was biblically based because the truth is found in scripture and nowhere else yeah, and I think as we've said, right, the the Bible is our main textbook. I like how Wendy said our supplemental text <laughs> <laughs> is the Zuber book, which is a wonderful resource, but our our main textbook is the Bible. So that's such a novel concept today. Truth as we're defining it and a book that's inerrant. That that's just novel. Um, yeah, I think concept. the novel concept is absolute mm -hmm. truth. Yes. People, yes, correct. want to land on what's true for me, yeah, maybe different than what's true truth, for you. Absolutely. Truth but that we go truth, to the Bible. Which is really logically inconsistent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Truth, the truth, not my truth, not your truth, but it's, yeah, it's, we're swimming upstream. <laughs> yeah, we are. We are, but how good to know that we can trust that the Bible is yes. is inerrant and infallible. Yeah. You know, and and uh, when we had the the class, I talked about the Chicago Conference on the Inerrancy of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And it was it was a, uh, this meeting of I think it was over 200 uh Protestant church leaders uh and they wanted to talk about the attacks on scripture because what we're talking about here is that there are people who want to say that it's not true. And when Jesus said, you know, your word is truth, they're saying, well, you know, the Bible says it's true. So how can it affirm itself? But uh, then there was higher criticism and relativism. There's the Jesus seminar that I um, talked about which was something that ha ha took place back in the 1980s where uh, liberal theologians got together over a period of several months and they went through uh, the New Testament and voted on whether or not verses in the Bible were true. And they had different colored uh, pebbles that they put in to if it was true, if it was maybe true or not true. And the Gospel of John did not fare How well is it there. Maybe true. Again, I get back to the logical inconsistencies in yeah. our 
language. Well, and then you have, wasn't it Thomas Jefferson, right, who just cut out, like literally yes, cut yes. lines out of the Bible if right. he didn't agree with it right. or didn't like yeah, it? Well, so. he was a deist, so yeah. that's, that was yeah. his purpose. Yeah. You know, J.I. Packer says uh, something that I love about the Word of God. He says, when we call the Bible the Word of God, we mean or we should mean that its message constitutes a single utterance of which God is the author and what Scripture says, he says. When we hear or read Scripture, uh, it is the speech of God himself. And one can either accept that or reject it. Mm. And that that is the hinge on which we handle the Word of God in, mm -hmm. in our churches. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we've referenced the attacks on... God's word. And I think you can go back to Acts 2 and look at when there were persecutions or attacks on the church. It always grew. It always came back stronger. And when people attack the word of God, I think it really makes you decide on which side you stand. And, and you, you're either coming down on the side of the truth of scripture or you're in heresy or you're teaching anti to the truth of scripture. And so these attacks... They can be a good thing because they really reveal people for what side they really, what stand they're really willing to take. Well, the Bible's clear mm -hmm. about itself. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I had this list of, of, of references that talk about the Word of God, that it's pure, that Psalms 12, 6 says, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in the furnace, uh, that it's complete uh, from Revelations 22, 18, where it says, if anyone adds to it, that God will add to him the plagues described in this book, that it's lasting. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And it's truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth from John 17, 17, from the lips of Jesus. That makes me think of like, like your definition back at the beginning that canon is the measuring rod. Because if the Bible is true and it's truth then everything else we read or hear, we should compare it back. That's the measuring rod, right? So it just made me, as you talked, think back to your first definition of what a canon is. Yes. Well, in Isaiah, uh, uh, Isaiah writes that, that men will set aside God's word because they want to have their ears tickled. And that is the thing, that, that God's Word requires things of us. And those who don't want to obey God, that just want to have their ears tickled, well, what's the first thing that they would like to do is to disabuse the idea that, that it is truth, that God's Word is truth. That makes it much more convenient and easy to uh, ignore God's Word and disobey it. Mm-hmm. Marty, what is meant when we say that God's Word is sufficient? Sufficiency of Scripture means that the Scripture that is able to carry out the intentions that God has for it, that it contains all the knowledge needed, as Wendy was saying, to bring a person to saving faith, that it's a singular source of knowledge that sanctifies, that the process of sanctification is the Bible is sufficient to give us what we need f for us to grow in, in holiness and Christ-likeness. That it contains that which teaches, reproves, corrects, trains, and equips believers for every good work, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.17, and that it's able to accomplish 
all the purposes that God has designed for it. And that's in Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11. So it is sufficient to do what God wants it to do. That is good news. Very, very good news. Uh, Well, thank you uh, all for all of your comments and, and teaching us about the Bible and that it is a trustworthy book that we can come to. And, you know, it's always just amazing to me that God gave us the Bible, that he revealed himself to us and that we have it and we can hold it in our hands and read it. And I never want to lose my gratefulness for for that. So yep. the B-I-B-L-E, that is the book for me. That's right. Yes. And Marty had us sing it. <laughs> Marty had us sing it in class. So that's yeah. why I was thinking about yeah, it. We're not yeah. going to do that right now. <laughs> I did at the beginning, though. So I get points. <laughs> that's now, I was just going to add what you said, that God has given us his word, but he has also given us the greatest teacher of his word. And that is the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer. And, and so we can sit down and confidently know that that teacher will teach us from God's truth. Yeah, Yeah. perfect, perfect way to close us out. So to end our time, our rapid response question for today is what is a book that you could read over and over again, and it can't be the Bible again? (laughs) (laughs) So what is it? What do you think? I don't read books over and over again because there is just too much to know. There are some I would like to read over over and over again, but I always end up setting them aside because I see something else that piques my interest. Okay. I would have to, I'm like Marty, I'm not one that rereads books, but if I were going to, I would probably go back to The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. Mm. Yeah. Good recommendations today. All right, Bethany, I know this. I know uh, yeah, the answer, Lauren knows. but you can say it. It's okay. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I, I do read The Hiding Place over and over. I, I can't, I read it once a year, and I have for, I don't, uh, probably a decade or close to it. Um, and I always say the theology is deep in that book. Um, so I love it. Um, but I've also read, I got to throw in there, I also actually have read Tolkien, Hobbit, Lord of the Rings six or seven times. So that is impressive. That is impressive. Yeah. I also love The Hiding Place and have read it several times. Um, but I was thinking again, I'm, this is so weird cause I'm not usually a fiction reader, but you guys know this about me. I think I love Anne of Green Gables. So oh, yes. it was mm-hmm. one of my favorites as a kid. And then when we first shut down for, uh, COVID, when COVID brought everybody home, I got out a puzzle and put in my noise canceling earbuds and listened again to Anne of Green Gables. And that was like my cue to my family to leave me alone because I needed space. But I'm listening to it now with my daughters. And yeah. so that's really special. So mm-hmm. I love love Anne with an E. So yeah. The, yeah, by the six or seven times of Tolkien, three was reading it out loud to my three kids. So, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us for the Theology Matters podcast. Next time, we are going to talk about theology proper. Thanks for joining us. The Theology Matters course and podcast are projects of the women's ministry at Emmanuel Bible Church in Springfield, Virginia. Please subscribe to Theology Matters wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, please visit IBC.church.com 
and find the Women's Ministry page. We pray you will continue to study and understand the truth of God's Word every day and see just how much theology matters in every aspect of our lives. 